listening to In Tune, a podcast series featuring equity research analysts from BMO Capital Markets. Our shows explore key emerging themes, trends, and issues which are important to our institutional clients globally. Hello, everyone. My name is Jenny Ma, and I'm a Canadian REIT analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Hello, everyone. My name is Gaurav Mathur, and I'm the Special Projects Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. We recently published our first in-front real estate thematic report entitled Trick or Treat, Dark Stores and Ghost Kitchens, which introduces and explores these retail concepts as they relate to real estate and the REITs under coverage. The report can be accessed on the BMO Capital Markets Research Portal or through the link on the podcast notes. We also want to give a shout out to our colleague, consumer analyst Peter Scholar and his team, whose proprietary consumer surveys and extensive research into Canadian e-commerce and the grocery industry was work that we leveraged for this report. What we found from our research was that dark stores and ghost kitchens are still very novel concepts in Canada. Dark stores have not yet penetrated the Canadian market, and according to the CBC, as of June 2019, there were only approximately 50 ghost kitchens across Canada. While that number has probably grown, it still represents a very small fragment of the restaurant industry. It's interesting to note that as things have changed around us and we're all working from home, so have our preferences. In fact, over a recent team call, we were discussing how furniture is being delivered to our homes. And the example that we gave was delivery from IKEA. And the fact that your order wasn't coming home at, on time, just because of the fact that there were so many people who were trying to use an online system and the system itself wasn't designed to be used for so many people. That's when IKEA opened up a number of pickup points, uh, especially in downtown Toronto. So suddenly for an additional $5 fee, I could go pick up the furniture that I needed that was five minutes away, arrived on time. And it also made me wonder who else is doing this. So Jenny, let me ask you this. We've seen similar models happening around different industries. What made you think of dark stores? Well, the genesis of this report was really from myself noticing that dark stores and ghost kitchens were starting to pop up in a lot of articles I was reading and videos that I was watching. Yet, uh, when I started informally surveying some investors I've spoken to and, and other people that I communicate with, it suggested that many of them had not heard of or fully understood these concepts, especially dark stores. Um, and this one in particular, there was some confusion with stores that were just vacant. As the COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated online shopping, especially for groceries, we do think that dark stores are going to become a more prominent part of the food distribution network. So while this is still very much an emerging part of retail, we wanted to take a closer look at this concept and introduce investors to this concept so they can start keeping an eye on it. It's interesting that you say that, Jenny, because it's a known fact that grocery retailers have been pushing the envelope when it comes to the online model and they've been rejigging some of their stores as well as their distribution facilities. Can you flesh out the business model for a dark store a bit more? 
Uh, yes, Gaurav, with uh, dark stores, they are also known as micro-fulfillment centers or MFCs. And it really represents another step in the evolution of groceries going online. Uh, what we saw in Canada, at least during the COVID-19 pandemic in the early days, with the rush of customers flocking to the online grocery channel, many for the first time, we actually saw some constraints in groceries not really being able to uh, fulfill these orders because there simply weren't enough pickup slots or delivery slots available. Now, to be sure, dark stores as a concept had been in place for some time already, but the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly accelerated that. And what a dark store really is, is it is a grocery store that is not open to the public and really used as a means of fulfilling online orders um, in a very close proximity to the final customers. So what you get from a dark store is that you can stock the shelves in a more efficient manner uh, in terms of placement um, and, and how many SKUs you can stock, but you also have better inventory management because it's not open to the public. So you're able to keep track of what you're selling from that store and how much inventory you have in that store. So these stores can be populated by in-store staff who are picking and packing orders, much like the ones that you may bump into when you're at your local grocery store. Or it could be a fully automated model where there's systems put in place to fulfill these orders automatically. And uh, we'll get into it later, but there are a lot of companies out there who actually provide these fulfillment models, these MFC systems to allow grocery stores to fulfill orders from a much smaller platform and in a location that's often a lot closer to their customers. This allows the grocery store to address some of the constraints, including labor costs and last mile delivery costs. With these dark stores, they allow for greater efficiencies. And interestingly, according to JLL, fully automated MFCs can fulfill an order in about 15 minutes or less compared to an average of an hour for the traditional pick and pack model, which uses in-store staff and obviously has much higher associated labor costs. Jenny, I'm sure you'll agree that that statistic which you just discussed was something which definitely made us sit up and really take a close look at this model. The other thing which came out recently was that Whole Foods had opened their first purpose-built store uh, that was supposed to be a dark store only in the Brooklyn region. This happened after Amazon stated that their online deliveries have grown threefold in COVID-19, and that's affected the grocery model as well. So. We know that this is an interesting business model, but Jenny, do you think that there's potential for landlords to now participate in this trend going forward? Yes, I think there is an opportunity for the landlord to participate down the road. Now, this is very much a grocer-driven decision in terms of if and where they want to locate these dark stores, but we think that this concept is an interesting alternative for the use of real estate, uh, particularly in markets where there might be an oversaturation of retail real estate. Um, this allows some of the grocer tenants to evolve their model and make use of existing footprints to serve their customers in a different way. We think that over the longer term, landlords can certainly participate in this process and help their tenants evolve their delivery. That being said, particularly for Canadian landlords, we mentioned that this concept is still very novel. So we think it's still very much early days. Um, landlords certainly 
should be supportive of their tenants and their evolving businesses. But we also want to point out that the dark store model isn't exactly the type of use that a typical shopping center landlord would covet because with dark stores, you've basically disintermediated the customer and the traffic that stores should be driving to your shopping center. So when you take that out, it's not as attractive to shopping center landlords. And also consider that with you know trucks coming and going, drivers coming and going, that creates a different kind of traffic that you probably don't want coming in and out of your shopping centers. Now, Gaurav, as you wrote this note, what stood out for you when you were researching dark stores and micro-fulfillment centers? I think what really stood out for me, Jenny, was the fact that dark stores could be an applicable business model that could solve the last mile delivery conundrum, as well as labor costs. From all the research that we've done and the insights that we've gathered from the brokerage community and other consultants, we know that dark stores can be built out in as little as a period of three to six months at an estimated cost of about three to four million dollars per site. And the investment can basically break even in as little as one to two years. Now, in contrast, we've often been hearing a lot about the traditional customer fulfillment centers or the CFCs as a hub and spoke model, which cater to a wider range of stores. Now, these have a longer construction timeline of two to three years. The cost on average is between 30 to $50 million per site, and the break-even period is about three to four years on average. So it's interesting that from a bigger model, we found something which could work in certain geographies and situations. And while this hasn't reached Canada just yet, it definitely bears keeping in mind because dark stores are hyper-local. They can accommodate same-day or even shorter-day delivery times. There's improved availability of product, there's customization of orders, and there's increased store capacity. So you are looking at a number of efficiencies throughout the business model. The thing which also stands out is this has now come about because consumer preferences themselves are changing. We are very used to the fact that we can click a button and our products can reach us within a day or two. As a society, we've gotten used to that and we're looking for ways to cater to that demand. At the end of the day, the consumer is king, isn't it? Yeah, certainly consumer preferences are king. Now, when we switch topics to ghost kitchens uh, and consumer preferences, I can tell you that we are definitely doing a lot more grocery shopping and home cooking in our household, which is consistent with Peter Sklar's finding of more people wanting to cook at home. But we've also increased our consumption of takeout because dining in restaurants is no longer an option or an attractive option. So certainly that contributes to the trend of takeout being a growing part of the restaurant industry. Now, Gaurav, has there been a lot of changes in your household as it relates to meals? Absolutely. Um, Ever since this pandemic has started, we've been homebound. And since I'm the head chef... Uh, on any given day, I'm either making a fine meal or a fine mess. And when the latter happens, I'm generally reaching for my laptop to figure out what can be ordered to satiate all our hunger here. What I've recently noticed is that ever since the pandemic started, the number of food delivery people who arrive at our building concierge has increased tremendously. 
And that definitely tells me that a lot of people are not just picking up their groceries online. They're willing to interact with their food and their favorite restaurants in a different manner. If they can't go in, then they're definitely ordering from their select uh, few restaurants. Now, when you talk about ghost kitchens, and from a Canadian perspective, we've been hearing about this theme for some time. Jenny, do you think you could talk a little more about the business model? Certainly. So ghost kitchens are probably a little better known in Canada. We've seen them pop up in the last few years, particularly in the urban markets. Basically, a ghost kitchen is a facility that's used for the preparation of multiple food businesses that distribute the meals typically through a delivery channel, though sometimes there is a pickup option. Generally, ghost kitchens do not serve walk-in customers. So basically, you have a ghost kitchen operator who rents out the facility, puts in the kitchen equipment, sets up the technology and the infrastructure behind the website and the ordering mechanism, as well as arrange logistics and drivers or cyclists who deliver your meals to you. So if you are a food preparer, it's a bit of a turnkey option where you can lease space from the ghost kitchen operator. There will be some associated fees as a percentage of sales uh, that go to the operator as well. But it's basically a way for a food preparer to go in and start cooking and start selling their product that basically has a much lower investment and upfront cost and is basically a plug and play. Uh, And in contrast, it's much, much cheaper than setting up a typical restaurant with a dining room and front of house staff uh, and all the other concerns that come with starting a small business. Uh, In Canada, the ghost kitchen started to emerge a few years ago. Uh, What you have is typically a few restaurants that come together, and often it is a brand that is well-known in one geography, and the ghost kitchen allows them to service a different geography that they normally wouldn't be able to get to with the original restaurant. We've also seen an emergence of food service operators, um, larger ones who operate multiple brands, set up their own ghost kitchens and disintermediate the operator and use that facility to deliver food to their customers under their different banners. So it's just a different model of delivering food to customers, but it really cuts down on some of the typical restaurant expenses, including labor and rent, which are often some of the highest expenses a restaurant has. Um, Particularly with rent, ghost kitchens can be set up in locations that don't need a lot of foot traffic or street visibility. So you save on costs that way. And also, you don't need as much space when you cut out the dining room and the other administrative spaces that a restaurant typically has. So Gaurav, when you're researching ghost kitchens, were there any prominent ghost kitchen models that you want to highlight? Absolutely. In fact, given all the advertisements that we see on TV nowadays, the one that comes to mind is Recipe Unlimited's ghost kitchen which produces food for its brands that include Swiss Chalet, Eastside Mario's, Montana's, New York Fries, and Harvey's. So every time I watch an advertisement on television, my first thought is, is that coming out of a ghost kitchen? So the model proves to be fruitful for larger restaurant brands when they have several locations that can really benefit from one production source. And from the examples that I mentioned before, it seems to be working. Now, That said, I think there are a number of efficiencies that are realized by both the ghost kitchen as well as restaurant brands, as Jenny pointed out. 
But, you know, one of the pushbacks that I've always felt with this model is, are we really stripping the intangibles out from the entire dining experience, such as customer interactions or other personalized dining experiences? But we would like to point out that there are multiple customer dining motivations that need to be addressed. And this model caters to a significant population. Given that this is an emerging trend, do you see the Canadian REITs diving into the story? Well, Gaurav, like we had mentioned before, I think dark stores and ghost kitchens globally are still very much at a nascent stage. And, you know, admittedly, it's difficult to predict how these formats may grow. This is particularly true in Canada, as the dark store concept really has yet to be established. Um, Just based on our conversations, we haven't really heard of any dark stores in Canada, let alone those within REIT portfolios. And also ghost kitchens have fairly low penetration. So accordingly, right now, there are few, if any, dark stores or ghost kitchens in Canadian-listed REIT portfolios. And we also don't expect that number to rise very much over the next few years because these concepts are still emerging. And also with customers being disintermediated, the dark stores and ghost kitchens are not exactly the traffic drivers that landlords covet for their shopping centers. That said, we think that these trends are worth watching for landlords because we believe that deals could be done for dark stores and ghost kitchens to the extent that it could fill a vacant space for a landlord and there is no take up from a more traditional retail tenant. So as opposed to dark stores and ghost kitchens really being a growth driver for landlords and for REITs, we feel that they are yet another alternative use for space that landlords could be considering over the next while. As far as how they relate to the Canadian listed REITs in particular, we are not aware of any dark stores in any Canadian REIT portfolio, notwithstanding that grocery stores are prominent tenants for a lot of REIT portfolios. And as far as the ghost kitchens go, we're only aware of a handful in Canadian REIT portfolios. Um, So we don't really think that's going to be a huge growth driver over the next while either. So this brings us to the end of this podcast, which we hope provided a little bit of flavor of an introduction for dark stores and ghost kitchens and how they may pertain to Canadian REITs down the road. For more information, please see our report called Trick or Treat, Dark Stores and Ghost Kitchens that you can find on the BMO Capital Markets research portal, as well as through a link in the podcast notes. On behalf of my colleague Gaurav Mathur and myself, we thank you for listening and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Intune, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Intune on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast providers. Or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more podcasts. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. To access our full disclosures, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure.